Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Rabbi Abby Soslin. Today we are studying Masachat Yevamot, Daf Kuf Yud Aleph, page 111. Wow, this stuff is difficult. <laughs> In preparing to teach it, I decided to go for some extra help. I went to listen to another teacher try to teach it, that is YU Torah Online's Rabbi Menachem Kagan. He goes through every single word of the daf, and the first thing he says on this daf is that this is one of the top three hardest dapim in all of Masechet Yevamot. I'm pretty sure Rabbi Kagan meant that it's hard to figure out logically because the arguments at a pshat level, at the level of what the rabbis are saying, are so involved and convoluted. And as I said yesterday, though, this stuff is also not so easy from a moral sociological perspective either. Let's see, today we are learning about a man who marries two women, a ktana, a young girl, and a chereshed, a deaf mute, and then he dies. Ba yavam al haktana, v'chazar uba al hachereshed. The yavam comes and sleeps with the child, and then sleeps with the chereshed, the deaf mute. I'm sorry, but it is not just the argumentation that is difficult on these pages. As my friend Zachary Shalom Berger said, if you figure out Yavamot, pshat or morally, let me know. So today, let's try to understand a small issue on this stuff that I do think has potential meaning for us, and that is the issue on the very last Mishnah of the page. In the middle of Dafbet, a woman who vows during her husband's life not to receive benefit from her brother-in-law. According to the Mishnah, if her husband dies childless, the brother-in-law must do chalitza with her. We compel him to release her from the marriage. But if she made that same vow after her husband's death, we ask him to perform chalitza. The verb kofin, compel him, is changed to mevakshin. We don't compel, but we ask. This is a fascinating moment. Let's remember that biblically, any utterance that is a vow is binding. Even I vow that I will never get any benefit from my brother-in-law unless it has been officially annulled. The rules of women and nedarim are easy to find. They're even in Wikipedia. According to the Torah, a neder pronounced by a married woman or a female who is still living in her father's house can be disallowed, can be annulled, really, uh, by her husband or her father, if either of them chooses to do so, but only on the day that they hear the vow. Otherwise, the neder may never be broken. So um, if the husband and or brother invalidate the vow that day, it's fine. 
Um, it may sound a little bit disturbing that a woman's vow could have been so easily invalidated, but it is good to know that at least it was only on the very day that it was made. And according to Rabbi Elise Goldstein in the Women's Torah Commentary, maybe it may have been a means of keeping marital partners in harmony by requiring women to discuss a neder with their husbands before taking one on. Either way, it is clear that after the day that a woman makes the vow, that vow is binding. And certainly after her husband's death, a woman's vow is binding. Her word is taken very seriously. The neder of a widow or of a divorcee is always binding once uttered. So if the neder of a widow is binding, then why is the Mishnah gentler with the vow that the woman made after her husband's death. Why is it that the rabbis say that if she made the vow during her husband's death, kofinoto, we compel the brother-in-law, but if she made it after her husband's death, mevakshin heimenu, we simply request it of him. Rashi helps us to understand this. According to Rashi, if a woman made a vow like this in the life of her husband, then she was not actually trying to avoid yibum. Rashi explains that the woman made the vow while her husband was alive. She never intended to be rid of her brother-in-law after her husband's death as a potential new husband, but she was simply angry at him. She didn't know her brother-in-law would become her yavam. Her husband was alive. And we can assume that she had no intention of prohibiting herself from him as her yavam. The issue of yibum was nowhere in her mind while her husband was alive. Instead, Rashi understands that she was simply angry at her brother-in-law, and she didn't want to get anything from him while her husband was alive. However, if she made the same vow after her husband had died, then her brother-in-law had already become her yavam. Her husband had died, she didn't have children, and he was waiting in the wings to do yibum with her. So if she were to vow at that point that she wouldn't accept any benefit from him, then she would have known that she was vowing not to have him as her yavam, not to marry him. And that actually goes contrary to the laws of Nidarim. The laws of vows say that a woman or any person actually may never vow against biblical law. And even if a vow is made against biblical law, it is automatically not binding. So a woman could not ever make a vow against accepting her brother-in-law as her yavam. Yibum is a biblical requirement, so the vow is not binding. Still, it is clear to the rabbis that she does not want to marry him. So the Mishnah pushes the rabbis to ask the yavam to release her. Mivakshin heimenu, we requested of him. The rabbis have no authority to compel him, but... At the very least, they ask him to please release her. This makes sense when we look at the last line of the Mishnah. If she intended to avoid Yibu, even in her husband's life, then we request from the husband that he release her from the marriage. If she intended to avoid Yibum, 
than she was intending to go against biblical law, even if her husband was alive. And the rabbis would not be able to compel him just because of her vow. Instead, they request of the brother-in-law to perform chalitza because they know that that is the woman's preference. Well, here at least we might be able to see one moment of respect for a woman's choices. The Mishnah lets us know, first of all, that a woman's vow is taken seriously. And even if she goes against Torah law, the rabbis respect her desire. Given the general lack of agency that we've been seeing throughout this Masechet, this is a moment of a little bit of relief. A vow is a big deal, and the rabbis understand that a woman's preference should be taken very seriously. It's a moment, a glimmer of hope, in an otherwise somewhat dark Masechet. I like to find these moments. I look forward to finding more of them with you throughout the rest of the week. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.